Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for September 27, 2021. Here's today's rundown. More and more hospitals are shifting to crisis standards of care because of the pandemic. Dr. John Zellum has today's lead story. The Biden administration is under pressure to quickly expand rapid coronavirus testing to curb the latest wave of the pandemic. Matthew Albright covers that in his legislative update. The Department of Justice has filed a complaint against Independent Health Association of Buffalo, New York, and its data mining vendor for fraud, manipulating risk scores to make more money. Mary Inman has that story. We'll also hear from healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and healthcare attorney David Glazer. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the program host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody. Good welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, Alaska has activated a statewide system for rationing care, treating only those who appear to be survivors. All others are receiving comfort care. Last week, Idaho activated crisis standards of care, reporting that the situation there was dire, especially since Idaho has one of the nation's lowest vaccination rates. Other states are enacting similar crisis standards of care as a battle against COVID-19 escalates. Meanwhile, could the government shut down this week? It's a possibility as Congress nears a deadline to keep the government open. It doesn't appear to have enough votes to do it. We'll be monitoring that situation. And finally, the CDC advisory panel recommends giving booster doses of Pfizer coronavirus vaccine to older Americans and those in nursing homes. They have not yet endorsed a booster for people based on their jobs. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Position Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Is anyone surprised by the OIG report released last week that shows that Medicare Advantage plans are gaming the system to get higher payments from Medicare? I'm not. In fact, the report notes that one single unnamed plan was responsible for a significant percentage of the improper payments, and that plan made liberal use of home visits to capture diagnoses. I'm sure all of you remember that we discussed this right here on November 24, 2014, where I reported that Aetna was paying doctors and nurse practitioners to go to patients' homes to perform a history and physical on their living room couches to capture all diagnoses and build up their own risk score. Now, the question will be if CMS or any other agency actually acts on this. The Center for Public Integrity did a three-part report on this issue in 2014, and they estimated the overpayments were in the tens of billions of dollars. Did anything come of that? Clearly not. Now, since I'm being critical, let me tell you, I get rather frustrated when I hear reports like David Glazer's segment last week, where he described the flagrant misinterpretation of the two midnight rule by the UPIC. This is really inexcusable. The standard of inpatient admission for services that can only be safely provided as an inpatient was abolished seven years ago. The UPIC should know better. But this is not an isolated instance. Several months ago, many hospitals were subject to large recruitments over what was deemed improper claims for provider-based clinic visits over an issue about mid-build exceptions. Well, as reported by Nina Youngstrom, it turns out the MAC Um, that did those audits completely misinterpreted the regulations and the intent of Congress. 
I'm also having a running discussion with the MAC about a statement they made in a webinar. They stated that since routine preoperative testing is never covered, a hospital could make a patient pay for a pre-op chest x-ray even if an ABN was not presented to the patient. I argued unsuccessfully that the need for an ABN is not based on the diagnosis, but rather on the service being provided, but they would not agree. They finally stopped responding to me. But I would bet if a patient was charged and appealed it, the MAC would rule in favor of the patient when the patient could not, when the, excuse me, when the hospital could not produce an ABN. I've also reported in the past about a MAC denying payment for a valve procedure where there was no documentation that two surgeons had evaluated the patient, even though the NCD that required that had been abolished two years prior. And I know you're sick of hear, seeing, hearing me whine about how bad the OIG contractors do when it comes to inpatient rehab and hospice audits. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but shouldn't we all expect the contractors to understand the rules better than the providers? Is CMS aware of their shortcomings, but they choose to look the other way? Where is the accountability? Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. Today I want to talk about enjoining a Medicare recruitment between Levels 2 and 3 and the importance of an ALJ hearing. Now, per regulation, once you appeal an alleged Medicare overpayment, no recruitment of the disputed funds occurs until after you receive the second level review, which is usually the quick upholding the overpayment. It's no secret that the Medicare provider appeals levels one and two are basically a rubber stamp process, approval process of the decision to recoup, hence the importance of the ALJ. Now, the third level, the level when you present your case to the ALJ, who is finally an impartial independent tribunal, unfortunately, right now, it takes about five years between levels two and three, although with CMS recently hiring 70 new ALJs, the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals is optimistic that the backlog will quickly dissipate. Last week, I attended an ALJ hearing for a client based on an audit conducted in 2016, so five years later, we presented to the ALJ. When presented with the issue, which clearly demonstrated that the provider should not have to pay anything, the ALJ actually said, I am shocked this issue got this far, as in this should have been reversed before this level. In many cases, a premature recruitment of funds in dispute will financially destroy the healthcare provider, which should not be the purpose of any overpayment nor the consequence of any fraud, waste, and abuse program. We are talking about documentation nitpicking, not fraud, such as service notes signed late according to best practices. I was recently hired by a company undergoing two separate alleged extrapolations, one in Texas and one in Arizona. You've probably all heard me speak about the family rehab case that came out in Texas in 2019. A court found that family rehab, a healthcare provider who was facing a $7 million alleged overpayment, uh, required and the judge ordered that CMS be enjoined from prematurely recouping Medicare reimbursements. Now, be mindful, the judge did not enjoin CMS the first time family rehab requested that injunction. At first, they dismissed the case for lack of jurisdiction. 
based on failure to exhaust administrative remedies. But here, instead of giving up, which I think most providers financially would be forced to do, uh, Family Rehab appealed the dismissal to the Court of Appeals and won, and the Fifth Circuit held that the Superior Court does have jurisdiction to hear a collateral challenge on both procedural due process grounds as well as an ultra-virus action. On remand, they successfully obtained a permanent injunction. Now, the clinical issues supposedly in support of the overpayments in this case are pretty silly. In our case, the ZPIC claims homebound criteria was not met when it's clearly met by any reasonable review of the documents. In fact, one of the documents claims that the ZPIC found no homebound status. The consumer was legally blind and in a wheelchair. The injunction hinged on the court's finding that the ALJ stage is critical in decreasing the risk of erroneous deprivation and an injunction was necessary. I personally look forward to the ALJ hearing. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Mary Inman, David Glazer, and Dr. John Zellum, who's standing by to report our lead story. It's Monday, it's September the 27th. You're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. Automate denial workflows and simplify audit processes from a single platform with Refine from Vine Medical. Designed specifically for healthcare, the cloud-based Refine platform delivers denials management in a seamless application. The Refine audit solution for government audits enables you to receive and respond to Medicare documentation requests electronically. Eliminate lost audit notifications and ADRs sent by mail, saving time and money. Improve timely filing of audit responses. Improve payment response times for audited claims. Manage audits through a single cloud-based solution. Consolidate software tools, eliminating the need for separate data and screen scraping utilities. And enhance the security of audit response data with electronic delivery. Learn more about the Refine platform at vinemedical.com and save the date for their upcoming webinar with Rack Monitor on November 9th. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report, it's healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. David, what could be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. It's ignoring upcoming changes to Stark if you rely on the group practice exception. Last week, I talked about hospital stuff. Today, let's go clinic. So as we've discussed in prior broadcasts, one provision in the changes to Stark that was announced in December of 2020 sets new limits on physician group practices. In particular, CMS is requiring groups to distribute the profits from all designated health services exactly the same way, if you're doing it on anything other than a productivity bonus. So historically, it's been possible to allocate DHS income for each type of designated health service differently. For example, you could split income from imaging evenly while basing your physical therapy on productivity and lab on some third methodology. Now, CMS claims that was never their intent, and they thought you would always divide all of the ancillaries exactly the same way. So over the last 25 years, I think there's been near universal agreement that you could, in fact, treat them differently. So in any event, as of January 1st, CMS is insisting you have to take the profit from designated health services, aggregate it, and split it in one consistent fashion, or alternatively, use a productivity bonus. 
Now, CMS is permitting physician groups to subdivide into smaller units that contain at least five physicians. CMS takes the position that you can take the profit generated from designated health services within that subgroup and divide it amongst the subgroup. So you take the five doctors, take whatever profit they generate in designated health services, and they keep it and split it amongst themselves. Now, there are several things about the change that bothers me, but most of them come down to this. I don't believe whoever wrote these changes understand how physician compensation typically works, and they haven't fully considered the unjust results. CMS fully recognizes that there are clinics with fewer than five physicians. Those clinics can split their ancillary income, despite the fact that there are fewer than five doctors in a clump. That creates the following perverse result. Let's say you've got three rheumatologists who practice on their own, so they can split their infusion business amongst themselves in any way that's not based on whoever ordered it. But if you take those same three physicians and they choose to join a multi-specialty group, their perfectly permissible compensation formula suddenly becomes improper. And that's utterly irrational. In fact, I'd argue it's arbitrary and capricious. And for that reason, I'm hoping someone will choose to challenge CMS's interpretation of the law. Basically, government agencies get a great deal of latitude to impose the interpretation that they want. But if it's arbitrary and capricious, it's subject to challenge. Now, one thing I worry about is that that challenge might run into a barrier in the form of the Illinois Council Supreme Court case. We've discussed this one before, but it's a case that stands for the principle that in many situations, one must wait for CMS to enforce a rule before challenging it. Now, there are some exceptions, and courts have heard some challenges to start, so there's reason for optimism, but I would worry about that Illinois Council buzzsaw. The key point is that if you're either a physician group or a hospital that employs physicians but chooses to use the group practice exception because that exception allows you to credit physicians for designated health services that are performed incident to a physician's work, uh, perhaps the biggest ones being infusion and physical therapy, you need to understand the impact of these stark changes. Now, Chuck, normally the band name is an incidental part of my song selection, but today it's central. On January 1st, the split ends. And sure, the band spells it E-N-Z, but orally, this works just fine. And if you're trying to figure out the stark changes, don't worry. I got you. You can see my eyes. You can tell that I'm not lying. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. The Justice Department has accused an upstate New York health plan, along with its medical analytics vendor, of cheating the government out of tens of millions of dollars. Here now with the details is famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Chuck. This summer, DOJ's enforcement in the Medicare Advantage program heated up and reached a tipping point with DOJ's intervention in and consolidation of six whistleblower cases against Kaiser Permanente, alleging risk adjustment fraud on July 30th, the United States victory in United Healthcare Insurance Company versus Becerra, an influential case at the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals challenging a rule that required MAOs to return known overpayments on August 14th, and Sutter Health's agreement to a $90 million settlement in yet another Medicare Advantage risk adjustment fraud case on August 30th. 
Now, for the third month in a row, another Medicare Advantage risk adjustment fraud case has advanced with the government's September 16th filing of a complaint and intervention and a case against Buffalo-based Medicare Advantage organization, Independent Health, its coding consultant subsidiary, DXID LLC, and DXID's former CEO, Betsy Gaffney. Constantine Cannon whistleblower client Teresa Ross first filed the KETAM action in 2012 under the False Claims Act, which permits private parties to sue on behalf of the government for false claims and receive a share of up to 30% of the government recovery. In one of the first times the federal government has targeted a coding company in its risk adjustment litigation, the government alleges that independent health knowingly submitted false diagnoses to increase risk adjustment payments it received under the Medicare Advantage program and DXID, a coding company Independent Health founded and then hired to conduct retrospective chart review and addenda services, mined charts for upcoding opportunities that could fraudulently increase Medicare payments. DXID, which also provided these services to other Medicare Advantage organizations, billed the MAOs on a contingent basis, under which DXID would receive up to 20% of marginal payments the MAOs received as a result of DXID's coding work, thereby creating perverse incentives for DXID to add new risk-adjusted diagnoses and ignore improper ones that, if corrected, would decrease the Medicare payments. The United States further alleges that DXID, led by Ms. Gaffney, coded conditions that were not documented in the patient's medical record, as required by CMS rules, and asked healthcare providers to sign addenda forms up to a year after the encounter, going back into files long after physician visits to add diagnosis codes to patient medical records that were based not on a physician's assessment, but rather on impermissible laboratory tests, durable medical equipment claims, or diagnostic testing. Independent Health then used the addenda, the complaint alleges, as substantiation for adding risk-adjusting diagnoses that were not documented during the patient encounter in violation and further violation of Medicare requirements. According to the DOJ complaint, such actions sometimes led to absurd results, citing cases where a visit to the ophthalmologist resulted in a coding of pancreatitis. Characterizing the scope of the harm, the government alleges that DXID submitted thousands of unsupported medical condition codes on behalf of independent health between 2010 and 2017, resulting in tens of millions of dollars in overcharges. Next up in the case is an expected motion to dismiss due to be filed by defendants Independent Health, DXID, and Ms. Gaffney in mid-November. We'll keep readers up to date on this case and other important developments in the government's crackdown on risk adjustment fraud and the Medicare Advantage program. That's it for me. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary, very much. I was famed whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in law firm of Constant Cannon, and for more details, read Mary's reporting on this timely story in Thursday's Rack Monitor. Up next, Matthew Albright with a Monitor Monday legislative update. The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Chuck, on Thursday, the FDA announced that it would allow booster shots for the Pfizer corona vaccine for individuals over 65 years and those with high risk of severe COVID. The FDA's advisory committee had earlier stopped short of advocating booster shots for frontline workers 
and for those who are at risk on account of their jobs. Then, on Friday, in an unusual move, the CDC went further than the FDA announcement and broadened the use of booster shots to include healthcare workers, teachers, and other frontline workers. State governments over the weekend very quickly started rolling out the boosters in, in nursing homes and to those frontline workers. And to clarify, the approved Pfizer booster cannot be used for those that received Moderna or Johnson & Johnson vaccines initially, and the Pfizer boosters have not been approved for the general public as of yet. Medicare, Medicaid, and the CHIP program will also pay the full cost of those booster shots with no cost sharing for nearly all of their beneficiaries. And as Chuck noted at the top of the broadcast, the congressional Democrats are going to be threading the needle for the next few weeks as they struggle with three monumental pieces of legislation. First, Democrats want to get their $3.5 trillion safety net uh, bill passed under a budget reconciliation bill. The safety net bill on the healthcare side would include an expansion of Medicare benefits to include vision and dental. Now, Democrats on the House Budget Committee did work through the weekend and passed the safety net bill out of committee. But at this point, however, the House and Senate Democrats are still trying to align on the whole of the safety net bill. Second, the country is out of money and Congress needs to raise the debt ceiling before the country defaults. It looks like Republicans don't plan on helping with this issue either. And the Treasury Department says that the country could default as early as October or early November. The Senate is expected to vote today to give Congress until December 3rd to raise the debt ceiling. Without Republican help, however, Democrats may have to use that same reconciliation package to raise the debt ceiling. But this has never been attempted before and is apparently more difficult than it sounds. Third, and finally, there's also a $1 trillion infrastructure bill that House Democrats want to vote on as early as Thursday. So, Chuck, a lot of work in the next few weeks for Congress, a lot of significant legislation, and very little time to do it. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. And later in today's broadcast, the horrendous challenge of rationing care. It's our lead story, but first, this message. Consider the broad range of learning needs for everyone in your organization involved with coding, reimbursement, and compliance. Outpatient and inpatient coders, billing staff, CDI specialists, auditors, and compliance officers. Now envision one place where you could satisfy all these needs through webcasts, ebooks, coding charts, premium news content, and more. The resources in this centralized hub would be accessible from any location at any time with any device for one affordable price. There is such a place. It's the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Get unlimited access to every MedLearn Media Resource contained in the libraries of MedLearn Publishing, ICD-10 Monitor, and Rack Monitor, all from one convenient location. View content whenever it's convenient for you from any location on the device of your choosing. It's the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Subscribe today. 
Hey, be sure to join me tomorrow on Talk 10 Tuesday. That's where we're going to introduce a new listener survey about outpatient CDI. It's an important topic and one that you'll want your CDI folks to participate. Also on the broadcast tomorrow will be nationally recognized professional coder, auditor, and consultant Terry Fletcher. Terry's going to report on the latest development of the government's No Surprises Act. There's been a reprieve for doctors that you'll want to know about. All that and more is coming your way tomorrow on Talk 10 Tuesday, 10 a.m. Eastern. Our lead story is next. Today's lead story is sponsored by Axia Solutions. Axia partners with health systems, hospitals, clinics, and physician practices to streamline process and drive performance in the revenue cycle. A leader in training and education, Axia's online user-friendly platform, Axia Academy, ensures the proper training and education of internal and external coding staff by making the process efficient and a whole lot easier to manage. Axia Academy offers various ICD-10, CPT and ENM training options and provides up-to-the-minute education on navigating day-to-day coding challenges of CM and PCS coding. The Axia Academy platform allows healthcare facilities to design, implement, manage, and maintain comprehensive training and education to support accurate coding, clean claims, and fewer denials. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, Alaska, along with Idaho, are implementing crisis standards of care. This is a result of the pandemic that is crushing hospitals and health systems. Joining us now to report our lead story is Dr. John Zellum. Good morning, Dr. Zellum. Good morning, Chuck. Towards the end of last year, Rack Monitor published an article that was scary at best, but started talking about the rationing of care. We saw it uh, starting in, in New Mexico. They were talking about it. <coughs> Excuse me. It was a fairly new concept in the healthcare industry, but it has been used in the military and EMS for mass casualty incidents where the patients are categorized according to their chances of survival, and it's matched by colors where red needs emergency care, yellow means that they can be treated a little bit later, green is the walking wounded, and black is just give comfort care. After that, we saw the crisis seem to lessen a little bit, but then the especially with the vaccination, but then the Delta variant came along and it's become a significant, if not even more significant crisis again. And hospitals are talking about something called crisis standards of care. These are being implemented in in many states, as I'll mention further down. But what are these crisis standards of care? Crisis standards of care give legal and ethical guidelines to healthcare providers when they have too many patients and not enough resources to care for them all. Essentially, they spell out exactly how healthcare should be rationed in order to save the most lives possible during a disaster. Under crisis standards of care, providers may have to triage patients by survival chances. Medication may be rationed and and patients who would normally be kept for observation may be sent home for recovery. Providers are not familiar with this type of thinking. What we are seeing today seems to be driven by the fact that there are many Americans that remain unvaccinated. The numbers of unvaccinated vary from state to state, but the most urgent situations are in those states with very low rates. As an example, but not picking on them, the vast majority of people in Pennsylvania that have contracted uh, contracted the coronavirus um, were not vaccinated, according to state officials, and this comes up from September 14th. Through early September, there have been nearly 640,000 positive cases across that state, of which 94% were unvaccinated. Close to 35,000 hospitalizations occurred, and 95% were unvaccinated. In addition, there are almost 6,500 deaths, and 97 of those were unvaccinated. 
truly, this seems to be causal. At the extreme end of the spectrum, crisis standards of care generally use scoring systems to determine which patients get ventilators or other life-saving medical interventions and which ones are treated with pain medication and other palliative care until they recover or die. Idaho has spoken, uh, uh, spoken a lot about being unvaccinated, and as of September 24th, 41% of Idaho's population, only 41% of uh, Idaho's population has been fully vaccinated. Other states that are looking at these crisis standards of care, as Chuck mentioned before, Alaska, then Kentucky, Montana, Arkansas recently. Interestingly, Hawaii released healthcare workers from liability if they have to ration care. The next part of this concern is what we're going to see shortly, and that is the availability of hospital staff. With many institutions mandating, mandating vaccinations, the number of healthcare workers is going to decrease, especially at a time where there is a significant need for them. In summary, we have an ongoing healthcare crisis and many, many American lives are at stake. Vaccinations should be a very serious consideration for every American, yet they should seek the advice of their private physician to decide if that is the right direction for them. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. John Zellum. Dr. Zellum is the founder and the president of Streamline Consulting Solutions. We have a number of questions today that came in, but we're not going to have a chance to answer them during this program, but we're going to make every effort to answer those offline this week. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you so very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Mary Inman, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Dr. John Zellum, who reported our lead story. And one more thing before we go, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.